Let's pray together. Father, we come before you tonight, and that is our, our prayer that all glory would go to you in the preaching of your word, and our fellowship, and our love for each other, um, that as we assemble as part, of, as part of Timberlake, part of your church tonight, um, that we would just radiate the image of Christ. We pray that you would tenderize our hearts now as we approach your word. Um, help us to lean in and hear what you have to say. Grow us, produce the fruit that you desire to see. Uh, encourage us tonight with uh, the confidence that John gives us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. It's nice to sing in here, isn't it? Yeah, it's sweet. The acoustics in here are like a thousand times better than the acoustics in the other building. Trust me, I have to sing in there every Sunday. This is a, a, a fun, place to, fun place to sing. All right, well, it is hard to believe, but we are finally at the end of 1 John. Can you believe that? Some of you are saying, yes, we can believe that. We have waited a long time. Well, for me, it's a bittersweet moment. Um, I have been tremendously edified uh, through, a, through this study of 1 John. I've been encouraged in this study, as I'm sure you have. And I feel like I've gotten to know John, the author. I've never preached through anything in any of John's writings before. You know, obviously I've done, done messages at, at different parts, but never a full exposition of, of any of John's works. This was my first one. And I feel like I've gotten to know him. We've benefited from his clarity on how we can know that we really know Christ, the real Christ. We've seen his pastoral heart. Uh, We've seen his love for the sheep. But one thing, maybe more than anything, that stood out to me about John is this. He is a man of quiet confidence. It's on the screen there. I don't, have it, I don't have it up here. Any way we can get the PowerPoint up here or no? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. No worries. He is a man, John is a man of, of what I've been calling quiet confidence as we've worked through this, this letter. Now, you know this church that he's writing to is a, a church, was a church in crisis. False teachers had arisen. They had drawn many away to their, their cult. The sheep who had remained in this church, they were frazzled, they were looking for direction, like any church would be that had gone through a crisis. I don't know if you've been a part of a church split before, um, but if you have, you know what that's like. It's unstable times. And John, as he's writing this letter, he doesn't minimize the threat or the struggle at all, does he? He acknowledges that there are many who are trying to deceive them. There are many false prophets, he calls them, that are in the world trying to lead them astray. He even calls them antichrists in the last days. And these antichrists are still actively trying to influence this congregation. And they're deceptive. But in the midst of of all of that, in the midst of all these threats, is a simple and quiet confidence. John knows the Savior And he's confident that the Savior knows the sheep as well. The great shepherd of the sheep, he will not lose any, he won't lose one of his his true sheep. 
Christ will protect them, and He will preserve His own to the end. John has experienced this firsthand in his own life. I'm watching your eyes, and you're looking past me at the screen. It's not that important. It's okay, guys. Oh, no. Now we're really going to test your concentration. If it's any encouragement to you, I only have three points tonight, and there's no sub-points, so this should be pretty easy, all right? This should be pretty easy. Where were we? Now, we were talking about how Christ doesn't lose his sheep, and that John knew that firsthand. John experienced that in his own life. In John 17, he heard Jesus, well, he records this in John 17, but he heard Jesus pray that he would guard his sheep, his disciples, that the Father had given to him. That would be John. He would be one of those. And then the heat was turned up. The Romans and the Jews turned against Jesus. They arrested him, and then John and the others fled in fear. They abandoned their Lord, and they watched Him submit to death, and then rise three days later. But this shepherd came to them, came back to them. He forgave them, He restored them, and He kept the fires of their faith burning. He equipped them with His Spirit, and He sent them to the nations. And now John, an old man, he knows the keeping power of Christ. He himself had been kept and loved to the end. And he wants this church, as he finishes the letter, to share in his quiet confidence. And it's not just that church that faces many hostilities, is it? We face many today. It's been the same for every church throughout the centuries, throughout these last days. Even tonight, right now, we look around and we see many threats to our souls, don't we? When we survey the state of the church in the West, in America in particular, it's very discouraging. Satan seems to have had his way. The true gospel, the apostolic gospel, like John has has been teaching us over this last year from 1 John, this gospel is being denied for a gospel that is more palatable to an unbelieving world. And it's crept into the evangelical church. And not only are there dangers within, but there are dangers without, outside of the church. The culture is day by day growing more and more hostile to the true church. I sometimes stay up at night thinking about how I might stay faithful to the end as a pastor, and I'm sure you do too, especially as we're realizing the inevitability of persecution that's coming in the, in the, in the days to come. But eclipsing all these threats is the threat of our own sin. We see the inky blackness of our old nature, of our old man. He's still lurking around. He's still ready to explode in anger. He's still ready to speak out in gossip. He's still ready to click that forbidden image. And so how will we ever stay faithful to Christ in the midst of such a tempting world 
in the midst of an evangelical culture that has gone sideways and with our own hearts that are often going astray. Well, John answers that tonight for us. And what he does at the end of this letter is he ends it with the same quiet and robust confidence in Christ that we've seen throughout this entire epistle. He wants to leave us with the truth that he is certain of, of the truth that he knows the church must believe. This isn't anything new that he's not already told us about in 1 John. This is in a lot of ways a review, but it's sort of his highlights at the end. He does not want us to doubt or to live our lives in fear. He wants us to share his quiet confidence. Because he knows that when we do, we will live incredibly fruitful lives in the midst of these last days. So how does he do this in this, in this passage, in these last few verses in 1 John? Well, if you're not over there, 1 John 5. We're going to look at verses 18 through the end of the, the letter. And John brings us into this confidence by really giving us what I'm calling three certainties at the end of this letter. Three things that John knows that he's confident about and he wants to transmit that to the church, to you and I tonight. And really the structure of this, of these, of this last paragraph is around these three we know statements. Do you see that in verse, starting in verse 18? We'll just read the text together. Number one, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Number two, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Number three, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So these are, John really gives us these three final certainties here in this letter. And these certainties are what we have to believe if we want that same quiet confidence John has. That same quiet confidence that produces the fruitful life that John lived and that many faithful believers have lived throughout the ages as they've stayed faithful in the last days. And of these three certainties, let's start with the first one that he gives us in verse 18. And we could say it like this. We are spiritually protected from sin and Satan. We have to know that and we have to believe that deeply. John says we must know that we are spiritually protected from sin and Satan. That's his first certainty that he gives us at the end of this letter. Read with me in verse 18. He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The first certainty John gives us in this verse is the certainty that we are fully and ultimately protected by Christ. We have an older brother, so to speak. And that older brother has pledged to keep us safe. 
Well, safe from what? John says, safe from both sin, our sin, and safe from Satan. He's saying that Christ won't let you fall away. Now let's take a look a little more closely at this uh, really tremendous encouragement. In this verse, John actually makes a couple different statements, but they're all tied together, and they all support this, this first certainty that Jesus is protecting us. Well, notice what he says initially. He says that we won't keep on sinning, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, literally, John's saying that everyone who's experienced the new birth, everyone that God has given birth to, so to speak, these people do not sin. And he's saying, what? They don't sin. What is that? Uh, How is that hopeful? How is that encouraging? How is that going to produce a quiet confidence? What does he mean? Well, if you were with us two weeks ago, you'll remember that in the passage right before this one, John encouraged us to pray for each other, for our brothers and sisters in the church, when what's happening? When we're sinning. When a brother, that's his code word for a believer, fellow member of the faith, is in sin. It's precisely when we see each other sinning, that's when we're supposed to begin praying. And it's not only there that he, that he affirms that the believers can sin. He says at the start of chapter 2 that he's writing this letter so that we won't sin. But if we do sin, he wants us to confess it humbly and look away from ourselves and to Christ. Remember at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2? So John clearly has a category for a believer who sins. He's not saying here that if we're really born again, we won't ever sin anymore. So what is he saying? Well, John's trying to encourage us here. He's reminding us that if we believed in Jesus, if we have entrusted ourselves to Him, it means we've been born again, and if we've been born again, then it shows that God has committed Himself to us, and we won't keep on sinning to the point that we forsake the Lord. All right? If you're reading in the ESV, you see that in the translation. They say, keep on sinning. It's literally in the Greek text that says that, we, that, that the believer won't sin. But they, they translate this here rightly, I think, and meaning they won't continue in sin. We won't fall headlong into unrepentant apostasy. Or to use his language from the last paragraph, we won't commit the sin unto death, unto eternal death. In other words, it's a promise that everyone born of God will come to repentance that we will learn to grow out of habituated sin patterns. It's a promise. That's what it is right there. We won't continue in sin. This means then that for those of you who are constantly grieved, you're constantly like vexed by the sin in your heart, by that anxiety that so easily entangles you, the impulses toward impurity, those patterns of irritability and anger, the pride that you see, the fear of man. John is saying here that we can know with certainty that you will not ultimately continue in that. And you're thinking, wow, well, how, <laughs> how can I have that kind of guarantee, Clay? That seems, uh, that seems pretty, like a pretty big promise. I know I feel so weak. I'm so prone toward deception. I'm so easily entangled. 
Well, that's why I love where John goes next. He doesn't put the focus on us. He doesn't put the focus on our ability to stay faithful to Christ. Instead, he says, we are guarded by another. We are guarded by Christ himself. Don't have that point up there, and I can't go backwards. You're going to have to take that one off there. Thank you. Regarded by Christ. I told myself I didn't have any subpoints, but there it is. John says we are guarded by Christ. Middle of verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. He who was born of God protects him. He's saying that we're guarded by Christ. Now, that's kind of a weird way to talk about Jesus. Right? He who was born of God. Like, uh, what's, what does that mean? It kind of sounds like he's talking about a believer. That's how he typically describes us as believers, as those who are born of God. But notice it's, it's this person, this one, this singular person who has been born of God, who is actually guarding and protecting, the text says, him. So if you look at the next line, you'll see that the him is a believer. He who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Right? So the him in both cases is a believer. So who is this he who is born of God? Well, I think it's pretty clear that he's referencing Jesus, even though that might raise some other questions. Because over in the Gospel of John, like I mentioned in John 17, Jesus says he is the one who guards believers. John 17, 12, here's what Jesus says. It's in a prayer that he's praying to the Father. He says, while I was with them, his disciples, I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. Here it is. I have guarded them, same word. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, Jesus wasn't a sheep. And so he had a role to fulfill in the fulfillment of scripture, as mysterious as that is to us and how that works out. But Jesus kept his sheep. He guarded them, and not one of them was lost. Now, God the Father had given Jesus his disciples, and it says that Jesus kept them safe. He kept them faithful, ultimately. He guarded them and helped them to persevere, even after the onslaught of Satan that had had come. And so I think it's clear that Jesus is the one who is doing the protecting. I don't ever see a believer talking about protecting another believer. It's, it's, in John's world, I think this would be a reference to Jesus. But if we go back to 1 John, why does John describe Jesus as he who was born of God? Well, we know that Jesus wasn't converted. So typically when it's talking about being born of God as a, to a believer, it's talking about their conversion, right? We're, we're born again. We know that Jesus wasn't converted because he didn't sin. Uh, he didn't need a new birth like us. We know he also wasn't created by God. In the same way that we were, Jesus is eternal and pre-existent. He says this about himself in so many areas, so many ways, but John 8, 58 is a great example. It says, before Abraham was, I am. And he took on the divine title of Yahweh. I have existed eternally before Abraham ever was. And that, I mean, and the Jews got it. They picked up stones and were ready to try to kill Jesus with that statement. How can a man say something like that, they thought. So whatever John's saying here in this text, we we know that he isn't saying Jesus was created like us or that he was converted like us. He could simply be saying that Jesus was born physically. So he, he he, 
he uh, experienced his incarnation. We know that's true. He took on a body, and that would be very significant for this letter because we know that's what the false teachers were denying, that Jesus came in as a man. That is an option. Or he could be referring to something even more mysterious. All right? Hang with me here. It's what pastors and theologians have called the eternal generation of the Son. All right? Thinking, what? The eternal generation of the Son. Now, keep your finger here and turn over to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 26. In this chapter, Jesus says that a day is coming when he will personally will raise the dead. Jesus will do that. When he's going to bring them to life. Now, if you think about that, like in the context, the Jews, here's a man, he's walking around, claiming to be the Messiah, and he's saying, I'm going to raise the dead. Verse 20, 25, truly, truly, an hour is, I, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So you think, wow, that's shocking for a human to claim. Then he says why this is possible. He writes in verse 26, For, here's the reason, as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, there's a warning here. You're not going to understand this verse. I don't think anybody understands the significance of this verse in its totality. It's a great mystery here. This is an incredible statement. And what he's saying here, I'm going to bring this back around to talk about what the, the eternal generation of the Son is, okay? Notice first that the Son here, Jesus, is dependent on the Father for life. The Father is the one granting this life. So in one sense, the Son's life is generated by the Father. He's given Him to have life, right? But notice that the Father doesn't simply grant the Son life, but He grants the Son to have life in Himself. Meaning the Son Himself is the source of eternal life. And yet that source was eternally given by the Father. So there is an eternal dependent relationship of the Son to the Father, but the Son was never created. The Son received life, had received life in the eternal moment, and is always dependent on the Father for life, but He has life in Himself. Is your breakers tripping yet? We can't get our minds around that. We're not supposed to. But it's an incredibly precise statement here by John, who has one of the most developed Christologies in all of, in all of Scripture. So pastors and theologians have termed this concept the eternal generation of the Son. He was not created but he is eternally dependent on the Father for life. And yet, the Father has granted that life to originate from Jesus himself. Now, if you flip back to 1 John 5, and we come here, that 
is probably most likely of what John has in mind here. It's sort of a shorthand way of saying, referring to Jesus as He who was born of God, the sort of eternal generation of the Son. But why does He, why does he say it like that? Like, why doesn't He just say Jesus? <laughs> be a lot easier. Jesus protects us. Because I think what John is trying to do here is he's trying to connect the family relationship between us and Jesus. Meaning, he's the older brother. He's the the powerful older brother who has all authority and is able to keep us from Satan. That's where he's going next. He's able to guard us. Whatever the case, whether John's talking about this eternal generation or just the physical birth of Jesus, it doesn't really matter. He's talking about Jesus, and that's the point. And he's saying that Jesus is the one who protects us. And just so we understand the implications of, of, of what he is saying here, he goes on one step further. Not only can sin not win the day, but neither arch enemy, the destroyer of humanity, Satan himself, John tells us. He says, we are untouchable by Satan. He says the evil one does not touch him. The believer. Satan is unable to lay his hands on you in an eternal sense. He is unable to cause you to fall away because his arrows cannot penetrate the shield of Christ. You're guarded by the sun. Now, lest we misunderstand John, he's not saying that Satan can't tempt us or that Satan won't bring difficulty into our lives. What he is saying is that Satan can't lay one little finger on us apart from Christ's goodwill towards us. Can't do it. In a mysterious way, Jesus uses Satan's evil schemes for good. Satan thinks he's thwarting the purposes of Christ and his church, but he actually ends up promoting those purposes. If you want some examples of that, think about the crucifixion of Christ. Satan was after Jesus, trying to kill him. What ended up happening? Salvation of the world. Then he tried to stop the church by killing off the apostles, persecuting the church, and yet the Lord just continued to spread the gospel to more and more places. Satan chased those followers around the entire Roman Empire, continuing to spread the gospel, plant churches among the nations. And John here is saying that Satan cannot touch you. He cannot lay one little diabolical finger on you apart from Jesus' will. And so John is trying to make sure that you understand that the greatest enemy of your soul, your own sin and Satan, they both have no ultimate authority, no ultimate sway over you, not because of your ability to withstand but because of Christ's ability to protect you. John wants you to look away from yourself and entrust your protection to Jesus. So, come to Jesus each day. Come to Him entrusting your care, your growth, and your preservation to Him. He has promised to do it. We're in His hands. 
Genuine believers are often anxious about their growth. I talk to you guys all the time. Well, I'm never going to make progress in this area. I'm never going to grow. I'm never going to. Discouraged, right? You see it. Well, as you come to Christ in humble confession, come also in faith. Let these promises assure you and give you confidence to fight the good fight against sin. I'm not saying don't fight, but fight by faith. Knowing deeply that Christ loves you and is committed to your growth is foundational for overcoming sin. Let me say it the other way. You will not overcome sin if you don't believe this. You know that to be true, right? Experientially. Or maybe you find yourself anxious about the future and whether or not you'll stand faithfully in persecution. Anybody there? John would say, look away from yourself and depend on Christ. Depend on the promises He's made to you in this verse Store up in your mind and your heart this clear view of your mighty King who has pledged to guard your faith and preserve you from Satan's onslaughts. Trust Him today and entrust tomorrow to His safekeeping. Moment by moment. Your sin and Satan's deceptive influences, they will not have the final word in your life. Not if you're a real believer. Not according to this verse. So that's John's first confidence, that he wants to make sure is settled in our hearts as the the bullets are flying in the spiritual realm. And they're aimed at our souls. Okay, We have to know our king is in control. He protects us. But that's not the only thing he says and he wants us to know. His second confidence is this. We are not under Satan's worldly influence anymore. We're not under that anymore. That's not who we are. Not according to God. We belong to Him now. Look in verse 19. John says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the next confidence that John wants settled into our hearts is to know where we hail from, right? It's not the world, at least not anymore. Where are we, where are we from? What does the text say? God. We are from God, yes. It's God himself. But what does John mean? What's he getting at when he's saying we're from God? It's like, well, we didn't come from heaven, like Christ did. What's he talking about? Well, we haven't always been from God. We were once from the world before we came to faith in Jesus. We were worldlings. So to be from God means that he has created us anew. We have new inclinations that we didn't have before. They might be weak at times, but they're there. And they didn't come from you. You used to love your sin. You used to return back to it at a moment's notice with very little, if any, resistance in your heart toward it. It's because you loved it. You viewed Christ as a killjoy. 
He laid down rules to limit your freedom and your pleasures. But at some point, you began to see Jesus in a different light. You began to see how pervasive your sin is. You began to realize how desperately you needed Him. Your eyes were opened to His infinite love for you, His infinite power towards you. He is now your rescuer and friend, not your referee. You love Him. You want to be loyal to Him for all He's done for you. You trust that His ways are best, even if you still struggle to keep them. When you hear His words, you say, yes, that's the truth. I know it's the truth. I mean, I struggle, but that's Him. That's God. But why? Why do you do that? Why is all of that true of you now when it wasn't before? John would say it's because you are from God. He has created you anew, and now you belong to Him. That's the idea. You're of God. You belong to Him. But that's not true for the rest of the world. And John spells that out. He says the rest of the world is still under Satan's influence. Look in the rest of verse 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John's saying the whole world, in other words, the old creation, the old creation is willingly enslaved to Satan's power and to his influence. The world gladly adopts the ways of thinking that are totally contrary to God and His truth. They freely live in ways that flagrantly rebel against God's good commands. And why do they do this? Because John says here, the whole world lies in the power of Satan. It's a delegated power for sure, but he exercises considerable influence over the world. But what about us? We're different, John says. We're from God now. We're part of the new creation. And his point is even the old world, even the old world with all of its seductions, with all of its deceptions, it won't have the ultimate influence over you and I. And the reason is not because of you, but because God Himself has fundamentally changed you. You are from Him now. You are under His influence now. Not the world's anymore. So this means then that we have to see sin as fundamentally at odds with who we are now. Who we are now in Christ. Sin is abnormal. It's contrary to our new nature. We're often tempted to view sin as normal and holiness as abnormal. And when we think like that, we're identifying more with the world that we don't belong to than with the God that we do belong to. We are new creatures. We're not perfect, but we're new. And we belong to a new world, to a sinless world. We have new inclinations given to us by God. 
Our identity is fundamentally different now than it was. And so each day, we have to remind ourselves of this. Just like we have to remind ourselves of Christ's keeping power. We have to pray, Lord, I know I struggle here. But this is not who I am anymore. Not according to you, because you say that I'm from you now. Help me identify with Christ rather than with my lust, rather than with my fear, rather than with my anger. Help me depend on You in those moments. On Your Word instead of what my old nature thinks and feels and what the world is telling me. Help me trust You and live out this new identity that You have given to me. I'm from You, Lord. I'm not from the world according to Your Word. So we've got to adopt this identity for ourselves daily. Daily. And begin to identify more with Christ and His righteousness versus the world and its sinful ways. So that's John's second certainty as he wraps up this letter. Right? We're not under Satan's worldly influence anymore. But he keeps going. There's a third certainty that we've got to know that we have to make sure that settles down into our hearts. We can say it like this. We've entered into a covenant relationship with God via Christ. There's a lot of overlap, obviously, between these certainties. We have entered into a covenant relationship with the true God through Christ. Verse 20, John says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. So, in John's third and final certainty here, he wants us to make sure that we know and believe that Jesus came to bring us into relationship with God. Jesus has come to bring us into the covenant and His work has accomplished it on our behalf. It's the essence of this verse. And so, his argument kind of builds in verse 20. And So initially, John says that Jesus came. Look at that. He says, we know the Son of God has come. So he's talking about his birth and everything that he accomplished when he came into the world. He's come into this world and he has accomplished some things. So what what did he come for? John says he came for a specific reason. Why? He came to give us understanding. He's come and he has given us understanding. And this understanding now that came from Jesus, didn't come from you, came from him. He gave it to you. And that's why you believed in Jesus. He opened your mind and enabled you to see your idolatry and to turn to the one true and living God. That's why He came into the world. To give you understanding. He enabled you to understand the Gospel. That's what is envisioned here when John says that Jesus gave you this understanding. But what's the end goal of this new thinking, this new understanding, this new ability? What does John say? 
came to the world, given us understanding. Why? So that we may know him who is true. He illumined your mind and your heart, not as an end in itself, but as a means to an end. And that end is actually knowing God. God's goal for your life is to bring you in close. He's bringing you in. He wants a real and vibrant covenant relationship with you. That's why He sent His Son. That's why He gave you understanding. That's why you believe the Gospel. To come to Him and know Him. And that's exactly what He's done at the cross and in giving you understanding. Now, I've used this word covenant. I've said covenant relationship a couple different times. And you might be wondering, okay, where's He getting that from? I don't see covenant in the language here, right? Well, I'm getting it from, I think, some of the illusions that are happening in this verse. Illusions just means, if you're new, it just means like you're hearing something and you think of something else, right? Like, ah, that reminds me of something else back here. And those are usually intentional. And what this is doing, what he's doing here, is he's using language that's meant to draw our attention to Jeremiah's predictions of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 33 and 34. Now, this isn't the first time he's drawn our attention to Jeremiah 31 in this letter. He's done it before, back in chapter 2. But here, at the end, he's drawing our attention to it. And in that prophecy, over in Jeremiah 31, the Lord says that one of the hallmarks of this new covenant relationship is that every single member will all know the Lord. Every one of them will be brought into this intimate, covenant, relationship. And that God would place His law literally in their understanding. That's the same word that's here. He placed the law in their understanding. And John never he doesn't use this word any other time in his, all of his writings, to my knowledge. So, it's pretty clear. It's a rare word. He's using it, I think, evocatively of, of Jeremiah 31. Especially in this context where Jesus has come to the world that we may know Him, given us understanding. So this is all New Covenant language, echoing Jeremiah 31. So the point here is that your conversion and coming to faith in Christ means that you have entered into the New Covenant. Your new relationship with God is a fulfillment of an ancient promise. It's what God's been angling for since the fall. And it's this new covenant relationship that will endure forever in the new creation. And it's begun now. God has saved you to know Him now. He came to you personally and brought you into a renewed relationship with Him. And if you are here tonight and you do not know Christ, He is speaking to you and offering this covenant relationship with you tonight through the preaching of His Word. It's no mistake that you're here. He's come and is coming again now to you personally to bring you into a renewed relationship with Him. So do you realize that according to this verse, God's goal for you, believer, is to grow that relationship? It's what He wants. He doesn't need you. But He wants to grow the relationship. He wants you 
to really know Him. To really trust Him in the moments of your day. To learn what it means to abide in the vine and produce fruit that your joy may be full. He wants you to learn the satisfaction of a truly fruitful and purposeful life that will echo into eternity. Our God is a fundamentally relational God and He wants to know your heart and make you fruitful. He knows you fully. He knows you more than you know yourself. And He wants you to know Him in return in that kind of intimacy. Not in wrath, but in covenant love. He wants to show you His greatness and His glory. He wants to reveal to you the tremendous hope that is yours in the coming world. He wants to make your life count now as you learn to live and die for Him. And that is why Christ came. That's why He came to the world. According to this verse, He came to turn you back to God Himself, to open your understanding and bring you into a covenant relationship with the Father. With the real God. And John says here, you've got to know this. You've got to know this every day. This has to be something that you live by every day. But our hearts, what do they do? They immediately cry out when we hear something like this, don't they? They say, me? Right? He wants to know me? Wants me to know him like that? I am so weak. I am such a floundering sinner. I sin against him every day. How can he possibly want me to know him like that? How can he possibly be that loving, that consistent, that faithful toward me when I am so undeserving? John gives us the answer to those questions in the rest of verse 20. He reminds us that we are in Him who is true. You think, who is that? In His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying we've entered into this covenant relationship via Christ. We've entered in through being incorporated into Him. Are you catching a theme through this this section? (laughs) No, you. (laughs) God, right? Not you, God. Not you, God, right? Three times in this passage. How How can this kind of relationship be ours? Because we're in Christ. We've been incorporated into Him. But what does that mean, to be in Christ? John's saying we are inseparably bound to Jesus. And Jesus represents us in every way. Everything He obtained, everything He earned, is given to us. So what are some examples of those things? We know them, but let's just hit a couple of them. Righteousness. 
Jesus Christ never sinned, did he? He lived obediently. He always trusted his Father. He always obeyed, he always obeyed, always obeyed his will. There it is. Perfectly. All right, the biblical word for this is righteousness. That's why John calls Jesus the righteous one back in chapter 2 in this letter. And when you're placed in Christ, when you are inseparably bound to Him, you get His righteousness. So when God sees you, He sees the righteousness of His Son instead of your dead works, instead of your lusts, instead of your fits of anger, instead of your pride. One of any of those would condemn you to hell and ought to. But instead, a great transaction has occurred when you've been placed in Christ. You obtain a righteousness that is not your own, that was earned for you by Jesus. So you've righteousness as part of being in Christ. Forgiveness as part of being in Christ. Jesus obtained forgiveness for us, even though we did not deserve it. Justice demanded that you and I be held accountable for our sins. We know that intuitively. Someone sins against you, and what do you want them to receive? Punishment. Anger. Your anger tells on you. Your anger is a, you're trying to punish them. We, we know this intuitively. The child molester goes free in the courtroom. There's an outcry. Why? Because justice has not been done. The only problem is, we are the molesters. Justice demanded that we be held accountable for our sins, that we as the guilty not be let off scot-free. But Christ stepped in and met the demands for justice. God poured out His justice on His Son so that we could be forgiven freely and live in this forgiven state. Being in Christ then, it means that we receive the forgiveness that He obtained for us. We were at war with God, but now we are at peace with Him. All because we are incorporated into Jesus. God was once our enemy, but now He is our friend forever because of Christ. So He's given us righteousness, given us forgiveness. We could go on and on, but let's stop here. Given us life. Being in Christ means that we benefit from His resurrection life. We are brought from death to life and we are bound to Christ. He gives us life inwardly now as we learn to become obedient to His ways. And He's promised life to us after death. He's promised us resurrection life. We will receive new and glorified bodies and live eternally in a new and vibrant earth. Not because you deserve it but because you've been incorporated into Christ. Now this has to settle in for us, that we have been brought into a covenant relationship with the one true and living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we need to act like it. Avail ourselves of the relationship. Now, as amazing as all this has been, it's as if John saves the best for last. 
And I'm not just talking about the best in this passage. I'm talking about the best in this letter. It's the best and most appropriate way that he could end the letter, and it is a fitting end to our series in 1 John. If you want to think of this as the conclusion of our message tonight, John's final words leave us with the true Christ. It leaves us with, with an affirmation on the one hand and a warning on the other. An affirmation of him as God and life and a warning against going after any other false God. Look with me in verse 20, into verse 20. He's done with the certainties. Now he is just exclaiming. And the ESV just says he is the true God, but it's literally this one. This one is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God. He is the true God. In the eternal life, there's the affirmation, the warning. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John's affirmation of the man Jesus as the true God is clearly the exclamation point. It's what he's been building to. It's what he's been implying this entire letter. And now he just says it at the very end. This Jewish man, the man Jesus of Nazareth, born to Mary, this man doesn't just teach us about God, but he is the God, the true God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And as such, he is eternal life. Life both now and and forever are bound up in Him. He, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Creator who granted life in the beginning to all there is. In our rebellion and in our arrogance, we tried to find life outside of trusting Him and found death. We cut ourselves off from the tree of life and the very life-giving presence of our Creator, and we've been abiding in death ever since. And yet this God, Jesus Christ, entered His creation as a man and He came to us after we had abandoned Him. He allowed His creatures to brutally beat Him, to humiliate Him in the worst possible way and hang Him naked on a Roman cross. All to regain our access to life. He has restored life to our souls. And this life is indestructible and it is death-defying. It's the kind of life that comes back from the dead. It's eternal life. And it is only in and through faith in this Jesus. The Jesus preached by John and the apostles. The Jesus described in our New Testament documents. 
This and only this Jesus. And that's the affirmation. And John wants this true message of Christ ringing in the ears of his audience because there are a lot of false gods being promoted in his day in the name of Christ. And we'd mentioned this a moment ago, but remember the false teachers that had left this assembly. They were proclaiming Christ. A Christ that denied Jesus' humanity. They had also denied that He died a substitutionary death. But they called themselves Christians. And they were seeking to influence this flock. And so John ends the letter with a warning. Following close on the heels of the affirmation of Jesus as the true God. The Jesus John preaches, by the way, as the true God. He tells this flock to guard themselves from following any false gods. Little children, verse 21, keep yourselves from idols. So this is, some have said, man, what a weird way to end this letter. I'm sure you've read it before and thought, huh? That's bizarre. It's not a weird way, is it? For John, what he's saying is any denials of the Christ that he preaches is not the true Christ. It's a Christ made in man's own image. By using this term idols, they would have been familiar with the temple of Artemis and the idolatry of the culture, like the actual physical idols. So that's in the background. But also, what he is doing is the same thing he's done in this entire letter by framing these false teachers and the false Christians in terms of, in in Old Testament categories, antichrists, false prophets. And here it's the same thing. He's saying this is idolatry. This is idolatry. Any false Christ is an idol. It's a false hope. It's something that will ultimately lead you astray. These teachers were minimizing sin. Minimizing sin. You didn't hear sin preached from their pulpits. They weren't loving the saints, even though maybe they said that they they were, but there was no body life in their churches. They were playing fast and loose with the teaching of the apostles' doctrine. They even outright denied some of what John had taught They loved the world, and they courted the world's approval. They wanted to be popular and accepted with the unbelievers of their day, rather than choosing to be unpopular and marginalized for the sake of Christ. Doesn't that sound a lot like mainstream evangelicalism today? John says that's idolatry. Guard yourselves from it. So how do we do that? How do we keep ourselves from idols? Last thing I'll say. There's a lot of ways, but I'm going to tell you the way I think John would answer that question. We can talk about more of this afterwards, because idolatry is a big concept, and I thought about just preaching an entire message on this, but I'm not. Okay? One way. 
by finding a local church that has qualified leaders who preach the apostles' doctrine. How do you know? Are they doing what we're doing? Are they going verse by verse, text by text, book by book, through the scriptures? Are they taking seriously the qualifications of an elder in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3? Are they heeding and applying what the Bible says a church should be and do? Are they following Christ in those ways? Are they willing to discipline their members when they're in unrepentant, persistent sin? Like Matthew 18, Jesus himself tells us to do that. We could go on and on. But in John's day, it was the apostles' teaching and the churches that were affirming, listening to them that were the true churches Those apostles passed off the scene and left the churches to faithful elders who carried on the apostles' doctrine. And God preserved that to us in our New Testaments. This is the teaching of Christ. The true Christ. The true God. And the only path to eternal life. So if you and I are going to stay faithful, we have to be part of a healthy church so that we can grow in our discernment, so that we won't be led astray, and that we won't fall prey to idolatry. Let's pray. Father, what a sober way to end this exposition of 1 John. And yet, we don't want to forget the cascading tidal wave of confidence that John has for the true church. We bear responsibility to keep ourselves from idols, but... We look to you first and fundamentally to keep us and guard us like you have promised to do. We believe the word that we're from you. That Satan doesn't have any ultimate power over us. That we're not from the world anymore. And we thank you for being brought into covenant relationship with you. And I pray that tonight, that believers that are discouraged would look to you, would have fresh wind in their sails as they finish up the study of 1 John. And I pray that any who don't know you would come to you tonight in humble faith, receiving all that you have accomplished on their behalf. We pray it all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.